0: Welcome to Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on the show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided on this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Catherine Ivey and Dr. Nader Sanai, welcome to this episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. I am so excited to have you both and thank you so much for meeting me.
1: Happy to be here.
0: So Catherine, just to get started, who is Catherine Ivey? Well, I'm just on a
2: mission to do what I can to find a cure for brain cancer. I was living in Palo Alto, California, happily married. I worked in finance, as did my husband. And he basically, his thumb was numb. It was a type of seizure, and he, life changed very quickly. And then he died four months after that diagnosis. Wow. So then I shifted gears because clearly there were no solutions uh, for brain cancer in 2005. Unfortunately, not much has changed yet. Mm-hmm. We're working on changing that. So I, uh, my husband and I had started foundation years before, became clear what the mission should be, and I've been doing that. I'm in my 18th year.
0: Wow. Was the mission, you mentioned starting the foundation years before, was the mission different prior?
2: We didn't have a mission. The okay. um, legal part of it was set up. We knew we wanted it to be health or education. But after Ben's diagnosis, it became very clear what we wanted to focus on. And at that time, we got more specific and focused on what to accomplish.
0: Right, and Dr. Sinai, I know you've had family members impacted by brain cancer in the past. Is that what sparked your interest in what you're doing today?
1: It was probably the origin of it. I, my mother's sister had glioblastoma when I was younger. I saw my family go through it. I think it introduced me to neurosurgery and brain tumors in general. And then later it was the science of brain tumors that kind of gelled with that. Mm -hmm. And then of course I trained in San Francisco, which is one of the epicenters of brain tumor surgery in the modern era. And so seeing that with the mentorship there, I think really put me on the path.
0: I know your practice is highly focused on operating on tumors that are in high risk areas. Is there any particular reason that you like to focus on that?
1: I think that for me, it's gratifying to help people that seem to have few options. So whether that's helping them find a treatment for brain cancer, or whether it's performing an operation that they've been told uh, can't be done, or operating on a tumor that they've been told is inoperable, those are the things that I feel like I get the most out of. And naturally, as you go down that path, it just sort of emphasizes itself.
0: And so Catherine, I know previously have spoken about how the mission of the foundation, it was sort of started to become an extension of what you've learned in your previous career, either like, you know, business strategy and practice wise. Can you talk a little bit more in depth, I know obviously you started the foundation in honor of your, your husband, but I would love to hear more about like the steps that you sort of took and how you decided to pivot to turning it into a brain cancer focused foundation.
2: Foundation was, while it was formed when we got married, when Ben was diagnosed is when it got super focused and I've always wanted to contribute to finding a cure to brain cancer and it took a while to figure out which strategy to choose because it was a new field to me. But from my previous finance career, what has translated is the values. My foundation is run very lean financially. I mean, the money is for research. It's not for me or, you know, anyone not doing research. We focus getting a rate of return on our money. We do milestone funding and we try to be transparent and just very accountable. At a minimum, I hope, and I am feel very fortunate to say, I think we've done this not enough has been done for decades for this cancer and people are suffering and if there's any way I can influence that and I feel through the Ivy brain tumor center we've really disrupted the industry and kind of shaken things up big picture there are different ways to do things can serve the patient
0: Mm -hmm. how do you feel like Ben would feel knowing how incredible the foundation has grown and just like seeing how much of an impact you guys have been making in the industry
2: well, I assume he'd be pleased, but I won't be content until there's a cure. Right. So um, I won't be satisfied. <laughs> High bar. <laughs> I,
0: I fully agree. What is the mission of the Ivy Foundation?
2: To find a cure for glioblastoma. Okay.
0: I know you mentioned previously that you did experience glioblastoma many years ago. Are there any differences or similarities that you've seen in the industry because I know it's you know public knowledge that not much has changed in regards to the standard treatment of care. Can you talk more about maybe what you're seeing that's maybe not changed today or talk about what you have seen improvements in over the last 17 years?
2: Well, sadly, I mean, the main theme is there has been no change that really I've seen. People have tried, and I think really smart people have tried, I think brain cancer is extra challenging, but through the IV Brain Tumor Center, the thing that I appreciated and it was thanks to Dr. Sinai is, you know, we're all trying to find this needle in a haystack of this cure and he basically said, well, let's look at this a little bit bigger picture and focus on the process of finding that cure. You know, everyone is focused on the home run, Can we efficiently get to the basis to get to that home run? And that's what a phase zero clinical trial is. And it's already proving itself. You know, previously, the most successful clinical trial I funded was 10 years and 100 patients. We're four and a half years old, and we've exceeded clinical trials for over 300 patients. So you can see the difference in speed, which is so important with this disease.
0: Mm -hmm. And coming back to when the two of you first met, I'd love to hear the story of how the two of you were connected.
1: I'm sure it was different
0: for both of you. I I
1: mean, I think within my field, the Ivy Foundation's reputation preceded itself. Mm -hmm. As soon as it was created, it had a major impact. First of all, this is not a field that is well-funded. When you have an organization that is literally investing more than any other organization other than the federal government, everybody becomes aware of that. So I, I was aware of it before we had met, before I had even um, come to the Barrow. However, I think the first intersection was uh, the way most intersections happen in our space. We submitted a small grant application, it was approved, and that proof of principle of that grant, which was in support of an early version of a phase zero trial, really, you know, kindled, I think, a, a larger interest. It wasn't I think for a while until I met Catherine and became more familiar with their foundation when I realized what a special entity it is. And, you know, I mean, she will never say this, but you have to understand that within this field, there are many, many well-intentioned people and, and well-intentioned um, organizations with resources, but they come and go. And durability is not really a, a very prominent hallmark of many of those foundations. Not for the wrong reasons, it's just the nature of things. This is a foundation that has really broken all of those records and continues to be laser-focused. The other feature of it, which I think you know, comes through when you speak with Catherine and, and people at her foundation, is that you know they're not here to be cheerleaders. They have a specific vision for what makes sense in the space. They're not um, here just simply to defer to any expert in any direction, but rather to put together a cohesive strategy. So those are all things that were evident to me early on. And naturally when you um, meet Catherine, you realize that that's all an extension of her, of her personality, of her passion drive. And it's very motivating. So uh, I think for me, that intersection was, you know, life altering with respect to seeing that, okay, there, there is this kind of passion and focus within this space outside of just myself and others that I know. Mm
0: -hmm. What was it like to be chosen as the grant recipient? Just to be, you know, to the initial partnership.
1: Well, it was an incredible honor, and I thought that, you know, to be honest, I, it just gave me a lot of confidence. I think that when you're an investigator applying for grants, you know, there's a system to it, and uh, in many ways, uh, we all grow up learning how to navigate that system. Investigators that are well funded are obviously driven and successful people, but they're also people that are very focused on becoming well funded. Getting funded from the Ivy Foundation is not quite the same thing. You know, in my mind, it's not about how well you've played a game. Um, It really is a validation. So it was a, a special honor for me. I remember that there were other grants that we had at the time that were larger in size, but that was by far the most important one in my mind in terms of a sign that we're moving in the right direction.
0: And so today, how do Barrow and the Ivy Foundation work hand in hand? What does the partnership look like? (laughs) Who
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> work very closely. Yeah, the, the Ivy Center is the is really the convergence of that part partnership. Mm-hmm. What we basically did was say, um, look, we have a concept for how to advance drug development and glioblastoma. It's predicated on these early phase trials called phase zero trials. And the only way that it'll work is if we have a seamless partnership with pharmaceutical industries biotechs without being unduly influenced by them. So we need to create a separate vehicle for this. It is a partnership between the Barrow Neurological Institute and the Ivy Foundation, but at the end of the day, it's its own entity, and that independence is what allows it to move with such agility. When we engage with academic or industry partners, the first thing they always tell us is how easy we are to work with, how efficient we are, how quickly we turn things around, and how little nonsense there is in our processes. So I think Catherine's experience and the Ivy Foundation's experience with the field was very instructive here because they had tried for many years to influence the field through traditional routes, traditional programs, institutions, and they had seen the underbelly of that, which we're all aware of. Which has a lot to do with the complexities of large organizations that have multiple sort of directions that are non-exclusive to glioblastoma cures. Mm-hmm. Now we've finally created an institute, an organization that is just solely focused on that. We care little about anything else. So that partnership, you know, is baked into that. Catherine and her foundation's involvement is 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 a daily activity and. Uh, for us, that's how the partnership needs to be.
0: And so Catherine, obviously, you know, looking back to when you initially began this type of partnership, I'm sure there is an exorbitant amount of due diligence that goes into it. But as always, it's, I think, you know, you take a chance on a new partnership. Do you feel like what expectations, if like, you know, have they surpassed what you would have ever hoped for when initially starting this partnership? How do you feel like, you know, the results have been so far?
2: Oh, Absolutely. Actually, in 2012, 13, I felt, you know, I'd invested over $100 million and had nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. And I almost gave up and said, maybe this just isn't meant to be. And then Nodder showed up, uh, Dr. Sinai. And no, it has exceeded my expectations. My job is finally fun. But it is just the biggest gift to feel... The hope, and I can use the past tense. I've seen how we've helped people live longer. Um, I've seen how that journey is finally moving faster towards a cure. So, I'm feel like the luckiest person in the world, really.
0: What kept you going? Because you just said you almost gave up on that search process. What what gave you that spark to continue?
2: Two things. Actually, um, that year I went and worked in a refugee camp in the Middle East and was talking to some refugees and was told what they went through. And then I realized what a wimp I was being (laughs) of all the freedoms and independence that I have. And And then when I came back, I had this proposal on my desk from Dr. Sinai. What struck me You know, I'd been doing it 13 years, and first I had heard about Dr. Sinai, there's this organizing the uh, brain tumor tissue very well, and that's the raw material towards a cure. Mm -hmm. And Barrow does more brain resection than anyone in the country, so it was already on my radar. Like I said, I try to run my foundation lean, you know, because the smarter we are with our money, the more we can do for research. And Dr. Sinai was the first one who did a grant and said, I didn't spend all the money, do you want it back? I almost fell over. <laughs> and then his review reports were actually understandable and inspiring and th- we just knew something special was here and we needed to make a further investment.
0: That's incredible, what a cool story. Dr. Sinai. you are responsible for all of the researchers, clinicians and everything that's happening at the Ivy Center at the moment. What does it feel like to have that responsibility, and what does your day-to-day look like?
1: Well, it's humbling. I think that <clears throat> we look at everything through the lens of the patient. And if you look at it from that perspective, there's not enough time. Every hour of every day needs to be well spent because it's really coming at their expense at some level. Now, we're, we're blessed to have a wonderful team. The Ivy Center is 50-plus full-time employees scientists, technicians, clinical trialists, clinicians, surgeons, etc. cetera. But we're, you know, amazingly in sync. Yeah, we have a lot of balls in the air and that's part of our system. We're not an organization that is going to make a singular bet on some singular tact, hoping that it's going to thread that needle. That's been tried for many years. It doesn't work. We're an organization that spreads rapidly in multiple directions. We pressure test things things that survive that get our attention, and things that don't, we move on. So we have a great group of people that are focused on that. You know, From my perspective, it's a labor of love. You know, I think when you're in neurosurgery, you're used to working hard, you're used to long hours. I was fortunate to be well-trained in San Francisco, and when I came out to Phoenix, I was doing everything that I was trained well to do, running a laboratory, running a clinical practice, being busy. And after five or six years of that, I realized that it just wasn't enough, that my patients were still succumbing to the disease. What I was doing to try to slow that down wasn't happening fast enough. And that's when you know, there was a desire to really pivot to something larger of scale, of ambition. That, that idea ultimately led to the concept of the Ivy Center. So for me, life is a lot better since that has come to fruition. Because I'm now part of things where for the first time, I don't actually know that it's not going to work. You know, that's one of the real curses of being in oncology is a lot of times you know what's going to happen, even if the patient hasn't quite realized it yet. And that bears a heavy weight. But when you have something, some new therapy, new direction, something that just emerged. I mean, we were just talking offline about a patient that's done well, and you asked me, how is it looking for that drug? And I said, it's too soon to tell. That's where you want to be. You want to be, you know, at, at the beginning of everything. And then if it's not looking promising, you move on to the beginning of something else. Mm-hmm. So th- that really makes things a lot more inspiring. So that's the fuel.
0: Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is proud to sponsor the glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM podcast. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is a small biotechnology company hoping to make a big difference in the treatment of glioblastoma. Using their proprietary nanotechnology, Biodexa is developing liquid formulations of an investigational drug, which can be delivered directly and locally into the tumor via an implanted catheter. This drug has been previously investigated in pediatric patients with brain tumors. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is currently running a clinical trial in patients with recurrent glioblastoma known as the MAGIC-G1 trial. To find out more about the MAGIC trial, visit magictrials.com. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma-tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the gamma-tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, meningiomas. GammaTile therapy is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and a far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. GammaTile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gammatile.com. GammaTile therapy is an FDA cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Novacure is pleased to support the Glioblastoma, aka GBM, podcast. Novacure strives to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of their innovative therapy called Tumor Treating Fields. Novacure partners with the Glioblastoma Research Organization to work together on behalf of patients and their loved ones impacted by GBM. To learn more, visit Novacure.com. Rune was built by a team of patients, caregivers, and medical experts, consisting of neurosurgeons, neurooncologists, psychooncologists, radiation oncologists, nurse practitioners, and social workers who have devoted their lives to treating and helping glioblastoma patients. For anyone navigating GBM, Rune offers a wealth of medically vetted, digestible video answers to common questions. Answers are organized into major topics ranging from surgery to radiation to caregiver mental health. Check it out at rune.com. And leading into my next question, I know the IV Center is one of the largest phase zero clinical trial centers in the United States, which is incredible. For those listening that don't know, what is a phase zero trial and how does it differ from the most commonly associated, like, you know, trials one, two, and three?
1: So conventional clinical trialing, I think people are familiar with. You've exhausted standard of care for whatever you have. Your doctor makes some sort of educated guess as to what experimental therapy might be beneficial. You trust that, that doctor's judgment, as you, as you usually should, and you go on that drug and you wait. A phase one study is when you go on that drug and you wait because they're trying to see what kind of side effects it has and how much of a drug dose you can tolerate. A phase two is when they know the dosing and they just want to see you know, how you do in general on it. And a phase three is when you get randomized and 50% of patients get the drug and 50% get a placebo. The problem with all of those pathways, of course, is that they take a really long time. And the only way to know if the drug is working is when it fails. That's what you're waiting for in all of those phases, for the drug to fail, for the patient to pass away, for their tumor to recur, et cetera. So a phase zero trial is a different concept for trying to understand the promise of a drug. And what we basically say is, okay, you're a patient with a glioblastoma, for example. We know you need surgery, and we're going to plan to do that. But that's an opportunity for us to ask a really important question. So we're going to find a drug that we think matches the biology of your tumor. But instead of taking our word for it, we're just going to give you a couple days of it before surgery. And then when that tumor comes out, we're going to test that tumor to see what that drug is actually doing in your tumor. And if that drug is getting to your tumor, because 90% of the time that's the problem, and if that drug is hitting whatever target it's supposed to hit, well then you know and we know that there's reason to have confidence in this drug and you should stay on it. And if it's not doing those things, well then you know what, we haven't lost any time. The most important commodity you have, you are literally exactly where you were a few days ago, except you've had a successful brain tumor operation, and now we can pivot to another drug without wasting any time. That's a phase zero trial.
0: And so let's say there is a patient that's on a phase zero trial, let's say the drug is not working. At that point, would you decide that, you know, like you're like nixing that trial? Or like, when do you decide that you're dropping the trial?
1: It's a great question. So our general philosophy is we're looking for things that really move the needle. We're not looking to spend five or 10 years to add three months of survival. And if you look at the history of oncology drugs, when a drug is working or a strategy is working, it's pretty obvious. If you look at, for example, Temidar, which is the only drug that has any real survival benefit within glioblastoma, the first studies in Temidar were in England out of Caring Cross Hospital. They were in an era, basically, when there weren't even MRIs routinely done. And even then it was obvious that this drug is doing something. You gave it to 10 patients and that first report of 10 patients clearly painted the picture of 10 patients that were doing wildly different than everyone else at that time, which was basically late 80s, 90s. That's how we approach it. We need to see some real signal in the noise. If it looks like a gray area, if it looks like a drug that needs to be optimized, if it looks like something that might work for one or two people, you know, that's valuable. But that's for other organizations and efforts to really refine. We're gonna move on. Mm-hmm. So we move on quickly from a lot of drugs. At any given point, our portfolio of drugs is somewhere around 15 to 20 different strategies, and that's cycling annually. Mm-hmm. Our typical clinical trial opens and closes within six to nine months. That's about the time that most clinical trials finish the contracting phase, and we're done. Wow. So this is the pace with which we go and it certainly leaves things on the table if you're looking for incremental improvement but that's just not really our mantra
0: are there any ever drugs at the iv center at the moment that are offered on a compassionate basis or i know obviously i feel like from hearing what you talk about phase 0 trial it seems like that's an initial stage trial whereas maybe an, in another center, it could be something that was seen on compassion since it's still very early stages. So how does that relate to what you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, you know, compassionate use in general requires partnership with the company. Okay. So it depends upon where the drug is with the company's kind of phase of evolution. For really early phase drugs, which are early and there's a lot of questions, many companies are unwilling to allow that to happen. We always push for it as an option and we have some trials where we've literally negotiated with the company that look, we're gonna do this, but if we also find patients that might be reasonable for compassionate use, you're gonna let us. And the reason that we can strike that bargain is that one of the key features of the IV Center is that we pay for all of our own trials. Not only do we pay for the trials, but all of the data from our trials and all the intellectual property gets conveyed wholly back to the company. So we're not going to the company asking them for support. We're deciding which agents are promising and then we invest in it. And we don't invest in it in a way where we're going to realize any downstream revenue. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're the best possible investor the company could have because we're going to give them data, intellectual property, a completed clinical trial, our profile, and all of that's going to come to them free of charge. Wow. So then we can ask them for things like, look, we know you don't do compassionate use often, but we're going to need you to do that here because our patients deserve that.
0: And talking about the IV center moving forward, I know there's a very new, exciting project with the new center being built. Catherine, can you talk more about what's coming up for you know the IV center and the IV foundation?
2: Well, the building is in process. The outside is completed. Yes. Beautiful. Thank you. I specifically
0: um, love like the logo lights. I thought that I was, I kept saying it to your team. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Oh, thank <laughs> you.
2: You know, it, we're kind of scattered around in the hospital. There's uh, minimum space and <clears> this will consolidate everyone together and really increase our efficiency. We're already efficient. It'll give another boost just because we'll be all together. Another thing that it will provide is um, patients will be in this building. And I think it for me, it's very important that the researchers, everyone see the patient to remind them of why they're doing what they're doing. Because everyone in the organization has one objective, is to cure brain cancer. It's, this is not a place where it's individualized, see what you can discover. It's a very disciplined culture we have one focus. So the building will, the efficiency and the time saving will just improve what we're already doing, Mm -hmm. which will mean more um, clinical trials faster.
0: And talking about, you know, when you are building this center, obviously it's a huge, huge passion project for you and it's helping so many people, but it's also something very near and dear to your heart. What is it like to see everything unfold in front of you?
2: It's wonderful. I'm extremely grateful. I'm extremely grateful for our team. Um, that's just been, you know, a miracle <laughs> some days I feel. I am very grateful, but again, you know, I'm a little restless until there's a cure. I just feel I can't totally breathe until that happens. And so we've, um, we are fortunate, you know, when we started this program, uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. and I would have conversation and it's like, how do we do this with all these contingency plans? And now it's evolved to we have to do this because we feel that we have the best chance to do something for the patient. And so it's, when you want something so bad and it's getting closer, you just want to reach for it mm-hmm. because you've wanted it so bad for so long. And I feel we're just I'm just grateful that I have that opportunity to be in that position.
0: Every day, you're working to do so many incredible things for the, the center and the foundation. What does your day to day involvement look like?
2: Whenever you're involved in management, a lot of it's just taking care of surprises mm-hmm. that happen. I spend a lot of time with Dr. Sinai and the different directors of the organization. You know, it's, when you run a foundation, you have a lot of um, legal and accounting involved, but every day is different, so that's a little challenging to to quantify but
0: what's your favorite part about like what you do day to day
2: i love exposure to the staff and mm-hmm. it's the people and to the patients mm-hmm. it's very rewarding you know and a lot of our staff is very young and watching them grow is very rewarding as well
0: and dr Sinai, how do you you know after i have this question for both of you but i guess you know i'll start with you how do you find time to recharge and just balance everything <laughs> day to day because you're doing so much? that's a 10 million dollar question <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: You know, I think that number one, the partnership with Catherine and the Ivy Foundation, you know, itself is an energizing force because what they do for us is they are always able to refocus us. You know, Catherine has a saying, it's about the patient. And that, that's such a clarifying thing. You know, a lot of times when you're deep in an organization or an organizational building, you can lose sight of which way is up. To have this guiding force, To have someone who kind of represents the heart and soul of the effort, that really helps because it helps you just cut things out that are unnecessary. You know, from my perspective, if you enjoy what you do, you don't really need to quote unquote recharge. We all have interests inside of our profession and outside family lives, et cetera. Surfing Surfing (laughs) is something that I like more than it likes me, but... uh, You know, from my perspective, I don't really get a sense of mental drain from being at work versus not being at work. Mm -hmm. What I do try to make sure of is that we're thinking freshly and creatively. And sometimes to think freshly and creatively, you have to stop what you're doing and switch gears to something else. At the end of the day, being around our team, I love that, Mm -hmm. you know, it is what gets us going. And, you know, remember there's an entire clinical practice sort of woven into this we have so many patients coming in and out of our universe and while we're doing what we can they're encountering this for the first time and it's our responsibility to really usher them through this dark canyon that they're in so that's a very gratifying opportunity to have
2: mm-hmm. what about you Catherine? well i'm older so i do get tired <laughs> but uh i don't especially more physically tired. I go, I prefer to travel mm-hmm. to a, a very question. different time zone. Traveling. Yes. And so being in a different time zone, a different culture really hits my reset button.
0: What's the most memorable place, most memorable experience you've had while traveling? Well, I've I know had it's a probably a very lot, loaded question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty
2: loaded question. I appreciate at this time the more um, adventurous exotic locations that are so different. You know, it's it's getting harder to find a city in this planet that doesn't have a Starbucks mm-hmm. and a McDonald's in it. So I have been enjoying that the last few years.
0: What's been the your favorite of those places you've visited?
2: Favorite is tough. Every place has its pros and cons, mm-hmm. but I uh, recently was in India and Nepal, mm-hmm. and um, so that was really interesting and having been in, last time I was in India was in 2008, and seeing the transformation of how that country has evolved was really eye-opening. That's
0: That's incredible. I think for me also, after I lost my father to glioblastoma, I, like, just got on a plane, and I went to, like, Asia for three months, as I've talked about before, but, like, it's, travel is such, like, a lovely way to, like, let your mind sort of, like, again, like, get this, like, little creative reset, and just, like, Explore all these new cultures, which is so fascinating. Yeah. My favorite place is Singapore, though. I would move there, like, tomorrow. <laughs> not sure if you have but Very it's, nice city, sure. It's amazing. Yeah. The food, the people, I've always just... Ever, I don't know. So that's, that's my personal. <laughs> Another question that I have for both of you, and I'd love, you know... I'm not sure if, you've, if you frequently have this com- conversation amongst yourselves, but I'd love to know what is something about the other that maybe you're most inspired by.
1: I'll start with that. <laughs> so, you know, you have to understand when Catherine talks about traveling, it is not the way you and I travel. You know, I will travel somewhere to go park myself on a beach for some number of days or to go see a bunch of shows in a city. She is going out there into communities and scenarios to really challenge herself. And frankly, sometimes well beyond my comfort zone, considering how important she has to our organization. You know, she'll she'll go diving with great white sharks, you know, things that I just uh, don't feel like uh, need to happen. Um, (laughs) So to me, you know, it's a special kind of person that pursues those kinds of self-challenging scenarios. We're all used to um, certain levels of comfort, and we get lulled into that. She's just somebody that absolutely rejects that. She is constantly, seemingly, trying to place herself outside of her comfort zone in order to understand new things, new cultures. You know, I, I have so much respect for that.
2: I was invited to Iraq in March, but my parents said no. Wow. So I'm going to respect that. I didn't tell you about that. But. <laughs> Thanks for making that choice. You know, some people growing up were born with like an athletic ability and uh Dr. Sinai God gave him this brain that sometimes I can't wrap my head around I think I've made him he's made one grammatical error in all the years I've known him and I kind of had a celebration (laughs) (laughs) to realize he was human but it's really fun to watch Dr. Sinai because he he is gifted his brain is at another level. And I've known a lot of neurosurgeons and a lot of smart people and he just is gifted and, it's, and he's using it in such constructive ways. And so that's really inspiring to me.
0: That's amazing. And so one final question before we wrap up the show, what is something that you would tell someone or a family that's just beginning their glioblastoma journey?
2: Well, I would certainly tell them about the phase zero and that there's options one day at a time, and that we're here to support them, That's it's pretty terrifying journey because people tend to go on Google. They can become misinformed, and it, people can become very overwhelmed and frightened. And so, you know, I would suggest my support and that there's options out there, and, um, you know, one minute at a time.
1: Yeah, I think that's sage advice. When that strikes your life as a patient or a family, I think that it makes everything feel like it's moving a million miles an hour. And different people respond differently to that. But almost in all cases, you try to do too much too soon. I I counsel patients and their families to take care of themselves, to slow things down, to take stock, and not to rush to any judgment, even if it's a judgment about what's going to happen to themselves. It's really important to be positive, positive mental state, physical state. We focus a lot on that with our patients. Of course, we're talking to them about trials and drugs and science and surgeries, but all that stuff is secondary. You have to walk into this really feeling like something special can happen here. And those are the patients that do best and the families that handle it the best. So we focus on that a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to join me today and chat about all the incredible things that Barrow and the Ivy Center and the Ivy Foundation are all doing. So it was such a pleasure and I'm very excited for everyone to hear this too. Well, thank you. I hope you make your fly. Our pleasure. (laughs) That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, AKA GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at glioblastoma research organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax-deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week. Welcome back to another deep dive with Stash Strong. Today, let's talk about this episode with Catherine Ivey and Dr. Sinai. What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I thought it, obviously a, a very insightful um, episode Two incredible change agents um, in in the brain cancer and specifically GBM space. One of those things as we look at this with themes from each episode that really jumped out to me was uh, when Dr. Sinai was talking through you know, this element of no change and and something that drives him and the Ivy center and the Barrow Institute to, to do more. Right. And it's what has brought us together and, and, and helps us continue to push our organizations because we're fed up with that. Right. The Mm -hmm. fact that this hasn't changed for so long, but hearing that from, you know, leading, um, individuals in the space is always, I think important to hear, but then what are they doing and what's going on to, to get to that point where we can give hope and inspiration to those still fighting
0: for sure. How do you feel like, or if anything, what has changed from having gone through your brother's diagnosis a few years back? Do you, do you agree with them that there hasn't been much change?
3: Yeah, I mean, if you take a holistic approach, there hasn't been a lot, right? If we mm-hmm. look at drugs approved and, and standard of care, like, it's the same. But I'll also say, in, you know, it's been five and a half years since my brother was first diagnosed, right? Five years since you lost your dad. Mm-hmm there's been a lot of change in those five years, right? Mm-hmm. There, There's more focus, there's more dollars. It's not enough, mm-hmm. right? I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say there's a lot more that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you also have to look at what has been done and, and the fact of, you know, the, the amount of episodes you have guests come on and like, I couldn't find anything early on, right? Five, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the same case now, right? I think you can connect immediately with an organization, with an institution, with a neuro-oncologist, surgeon, what have you. Again, given your... Location and what's available to you—that that's different than yeah. it, that it was when we first went through in you know 2017.
0: Mm-hmm. When you were going through your brother's diagnosis, did you know what phase zero trials were?
3: No, it, I mean, yeah, me either. Yeah, it's one of those fascinating things. Right, if you take yourself back to step one, and I try to do that in every one of your episodes, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. Yeah, right. I and, knew nothing. Nothing, and, and I think it, you get to a point now. Obviously, we know a lot. We still, you know, there's plenty more to know, but we we are equipped with a lot of information so how can we further help push that envelope of change right and how Mm -hmm. can we ensure that when that family day one goes through it they do know about phase zero and again i have a lot of families that reach out to us i'm sure the same for you Mm -hmm. who are aware of these trials and what's happening that again i do not think that was the same even five ten years ago
0: yeah i remember with my dad like there's just such an overwhelming amount of information that happens at the beginning you're like what do i do when everyone's giving you different scenarios and telling you to do different things and then you're kind of like against the clock where you feel like you have to make Mm -hmm. a decision and it gets super overwhelming so I think the fact that times are progressing and there is a lot more information out there and more options but also in more like regimented and accessible way I feel like is really
3: important how was that for you when your dad was diagnosed in the sense of knowing that you didn't know a lot of things right and information wasn't at your hands as it is kind of now
0: It's a tricky situation because my dad was diagnosed i wasn't informed about it so like i went through a majority of his diagnosis without even like knowing that he had brain cancer so it's like this weird double-edged sword Mm -hmm. because like if i did know what would i have done and i would probably do what i did when i found out which was like you google glioblastoma but it was just to a point where it was just so progressed and it was so rapid that it wasn't even like we didn't even have an option Mm -hmm. for that so like it's so hard to comment because I think a lot of people in my situation think about, okay, like Amber started a nonprofit in honor of her father and like she dealt with glioblastoma, but like I didn't have the traditional experience Mm -hmm. that I'd say most people do. Like I just, I didn't know about it, which is like super frustrating, but like, I just, I don't know.
3: And I think there's also plenty of families who we talk with, right. That don't get, you know, my brother got 25 months, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it's hard to say that's fortunate mm-hmm. at 30 years old, yeah. um, but it was, right? And we meet with a lot of families who get only a couple months. So gathering that information by the time you even figure out what just hits you, again, in an aggressive case, mm-hmm. can, can oftentimes, you know, already be too late.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway, I feel like, from this episode. Do you?
3: Yeah. And, and again, I think it's, it's always good as you sit in your seat and listen through your season, right, to think of who's on the mic, right, on the other side of you, right? Who's, mm-hmm. what, where, what have they gone through personally, right? Why are they um, so inspired and dedicated to whatever they're doing, whether it's like Dr. Sinai in this case, whether it's um, Catherine Ivy, right, mm-hmm. focused on raising maximum dollars in, in the hands of top researchers, oncologists, and surgeons. I, I think that helps level set why we're acknowledging there's been no change, but we're devoted to changing that.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us on this segment of Deep Dive with Sastra.